If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 20. We're going to take a departure from Ephesians, but the little secret that Christ's church shares that the world may not understand is we don't just celebrate the resurrection on one day a year. We celebrate it every day, every moment of our lives. Just want to commend Fisherville Baptist for reaching our Annie Armstrong Christmas Easter offering. Our goal was 22000 and as of today, $23,350. For those of you who are visiting with us, 100% of that money goes to our North American missionaries. Uh, we believe that what the cross communicates is that we deserve death, we deserve judgment. That's what the cross uh, communicates to, uh, to the world. That's why Jesus Christ came as our substitute. But the resurrection communicates that there is no sin that's not already been judged at the cross. The resurrection is the hope of the world because every imaginable sin, every imaginable sin condition has been judged at the cross. And, and upon that judgment, Christ raised, or God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And now we have to take that message to the world. And through such offerings as our Annie Armstrong Easter offering, we're able to do that. So I commend you, Fisherville, for giving sacrificially to this offering. Uh, one brief announcement. We are not having service tonight, so enjoy your family and friends on this resurrection afternoon. Well, let's pray and let's ask the Lord uh, to bless the preaching of his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the reality that we come to you this morning through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we consider this very familiar passage in John chapter 20 that unfolds the resurrection narrative, we pray that that which is familiar to us would not eclipse the glory that is seen in this passage, a glory that we need to behold this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. According to literary scholars, a tragedy in literary works tells the story of, of a great person who is brought down by a fatal flaw. Now, at the end of the tragedy, this, this hero is usually brought to repentance and he receives or she receives some degree of moral clarity as a result of his or her suffering. Uh, case in point in literary works, you could think of Hamlet or King Lear. Uh, those are fictional uh, literary works. But then when you think about the Word of God and what happened in real history, David and Bathsheba, and the account there is a, an example uh, of a tragedy in that regard. Now, given this understanding of, of tragedy, literary tragedy, could we see the death of, of Jesus Christ as a tragedy? Sometimes you'll hear that spoken that way in our culture. Well, the answer to that is no, because Jesus Christ did not die because of a moral failing that he committed. He died for our moral failings. He died for our sins. He died for our sin condition. And so the question is, what kind of story is the gospel story? Well, believe it or not, 
In literary terms, it's a comedy. Now, not in the superficial sense of intending to amuse us or intending to make us laugh or entertain us. No. In literary terms, a comedy is a story of a happy ending. It begins in prosperity, it descends into tragedy, and then it rises again, that story, to end in victory and joy and restoration. Would that be in the case? The gospel story is the greatest of all comedies. Indeed, the divine comedy, especially since it's true, since it happened in history and time and space. That being the case, John chapter 20 gives us the end of that story. Indeed, it's happy news. It's good news. And yet, despite its happy ending, this chapter begins in apparent hopeless despair. At this point, Jesus Christ was crucified on on Friday. We call Good Friday. He was buried late on that Friday. And then Saturday's kind of passed over. Uh, Saturday is kind of passed over by the Gospels. But Saturday would have been brutal. Saturday would have been brutal for all the disciples. But it reminds us, Saturday reminds us that even though God appears to be silent, he is never inactive. There are times when it appears that God is silent, but he is never inactive. And as we're going to see, and as we already know as believers, God often does his most glorious work when the situation looks the most impossible. That brings us to the first part of this passage. The first 10 verses really uh, begins to lay out the reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has conquered death. Quite remarkable. Look with me in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, the only thing we know about Mary Magdalene, and we know this from Luke chapter 8, is that she was formerly possessed by seven demons. And we know that Jesus forgave her of her sins. To be possessed by demons would have would have been the result of someone's just persisting in unrepentant sin. And so Jesus forgave her of her sins and he healed her. He, he healed her of her demon possession. And as a result, Luke 8 says she began to give financially to his ministry out of her own means. Now, Mary is likely there on this morning to weep. She's likely there to pray. Very disappointed, I'm sure. And she likely has no plan beyond that. And what we know of her, though, from her past, confirms Jesus' words from Luke chapter 7. 
where it says, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. If any of us had any notion, and I don't think any of us have even a clue of how much we've been forgiven as believers, I think when we stand before the Lord in that day, we're going to come to terms with that. If any of us had any clue of how much we have been forgiven, our devotion would be, look a whole lot more like Mary's. We would probably have a, a lot less critical spirit. We would lot, have a lot less judgmental spirit. We would have a whole lot more devotion if we had any notion of how much we have been forgiven. But as of yet, Mary doesn't understand what it took for her to be forgiven. Remember, uh, the story is unfolding at this point. This is progressive revelation. We do know from chapter 19, verse 25, just a few verses earlier, that she was there at the crucifixion. So Mary was there beholding her Lord being crucified on the cross. And of course, we, we know that when he was on the cross, John 19, 30 tells us, and it's likely Mary heard these words. He says our three words in English, translated this way, but one word in Greek, it is finished, tetelestai. It's likely she heard Jesus cry out on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. Now let me just speak to that verb just for a moment because our English does not have a perfect tense verb. But in the Greek, tetelestai is a perfect tense. Now why is that important? Because it's something that happens in the past and has ongoing permanent effects. When Jesus was crying out, it is finished, he was saying he had satisfied the wrath of God once and for all. The wrath of God would never have to be satisfied again for those who trust in Christ. It is very likely Mary heard those words, but what she did not understand at this moment was that the resurrection was the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. She didn't understand at this moment that he would have to be raised from the grave. And when she gets there, it's still dark. Now, John never wastes words. He is the apostle of imagery and symbolism. For him, darkness represents evil. It represents all of the brokenness and the curse of this sin-stained world. In fact, at the very beginning of his gospel, John declares, the light shall shines in darkness. Now, who is the light? It's a person. The God-man. The word that became flesh. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it. It has not overcome it. And here at the end of this gospel, 
John is making that clear through this resurrection. Here in the midst of this darkness, in spite of what Mary has imagined, God's been doing an incredible work. Isn't that hopeful for us? And like the other gospels, it's interesting that John tells us it was the first day of the week. Now, if you study the gospels, you always see Jesus prophesying that he would be raised on the third day, which he was. Uh, They had a kind of inclusive kind of way of counting things. And so Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, he was raised on the third day. But when you get to the resurrection narrative, it says that he was raised on the first day of the week. Now, why are the gospel writers depicting it that way? Well, to present the resurrection as the beginning of something gloriously new. Now, remember, this is a remarkable thing. There were seven feasts in Israel, like the Passover feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, and so forth. There were seven feasts in Israel, and each one of them culminated not on the last day of the week. Each one of them culminated on the first day, or you could say the eighth day the beginning of the new week. So for example, in John chapter seven, Jesus says this on the last day of the the Feast of Tabernacles. He stood up and cried. Now this is on Sunday. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And and John is very intentional to communicate that this happened on the first day of the week, on Sunday. Indeed, Jesus was resurrected on the eighth day of the Passover week. Acts tells us that the Holy Spirit came down on the church on Pentecost, which was the Sunday after the seventh Sabbath from the Passover. In other words, the eighth day of the seventh week. In other words, our hope is not found in the old week of the law, but in the new week of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why the church shifted its day of worship from the last day of the week, the Sabbath, to the first day of the week, which represents the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on this eighth day, Mary comes to this cave tomb and what she learned was unsettling for her. But remember, this is a very important point. What we experience with our senses is never the entire story. What we experience with our senses is never the entire story. God is a much better story writer than that. That brings us to verse 2. So she notices the stone's been taken away. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who happens to be one writing this gospel. That's John himself. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Grave robbery was common in the day. In fact, the Jewish leaders would eventually accuse the disciples of of robbing the grave. But Mary had no thought of of, of a resurrection. You know, if you'll read liberal 
theologians today, they'll say, well, people believed in the pre-scientific age in things like resurrections. We don't believe in resurrections today in the time of electric light, electric razors. But the reality is a resurrection had never happened in the history of the world at that point. And so she had no notion that Christ had been raised. Now notice in verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Now, it's amazing how much ink has been spilled on why John outran Peter. It's clear he was a better athlete. That's what it comes down to. And he reached the tomb first and stooping to look in. So the tombs were more horizontal than vertical. You would have had to stoop down. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, we're going to see a progression of faith here. Just bear with me, and I think it's intentional by the author. You're going to see a progression of faith in this chapter by the use of three different words which can be translated to see or to look. Those three words are blepo, theoro, and haro. Now let's talk about these. The first we see here in verse 5, and I think we miss it in English, and that's why I bring it out. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes. That word is blepo. It, it simply means to look and to see. That's all it means. And we see it here in verse 5. But the second word, theoro, we see in verse 6, and it described what happened to Peter. Notice in verse 6, then Peter, Simon Peter came following him. He went into the tomb. He saw, different word. Now this word theoro, is where we get the word theater. It's the same place or the root that we get for the word theater. It means to wonder or to regard something's meaning. And so there seems to be a progression as they, as they are looking into these things. Peter takes a long, thoughtful look. And the evidence was clear that no one simply moved the body. And the reason we say that, it's impossible to think that, that thieves would have taken the time to remove the cloth, leaving behind expensive linen and even more expensive spices or would even leave the cloth in, in an orderly arrangement. Now, the third word we see in verse 8. Um, but look with me. He says, the faith cloth, the face cloth they looked, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went in and he saw. So it's a different word, horeo. Um, this literally means to see with comprehension and understanding. And so there's a progression of thought as they see. Notice in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures. So he, he saw, he believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he might rise, he must rise from the dead. And so this progression of thought I bring out to you because it doesn't just tell us what happened. It tells us what happens. A person is converted to Christ, first of all, just by looking and, and observing and, 
and, and looking into the claims of Christ. And then it extends to this person considering the person, the claims, and the works of Christ. And finally, it, this person comes to comprehend and understand who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And I believe that can be true of any person here today that's never trusted in Jesus. If you will just look into Christ, look into his claims, look into his person. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus before. Maybe you've never repented of your sins. But if you will, if you will sincerely look into who he is and, and what he has come to do to save sinners, the Spirit of God will open your eyes to behold his glory and your need for him. And yet at this point, their seeing and believing is not yet complete because they did not yet understand the scriptures. Uh, you, you read the New Testament, you'll often see that, our, that the scriptures themselves have more objective power to them than even our experiences. Now, now John doesn't cite a particular scripture here. He just says at this point, they did not understand the scriptures. It's likely that he has in view a broad theme, just vast amounts of texts that kind of signal when you bring them together that in order for the people of God to be redeemed, they would need a Messiah who would be raised from the grave. So for instance, John 19, 25, or Job 19, 25, Job writes, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall stand upon the earth. Now most scholars believe Job may be the oldest book of the Bible. And so the oldest book of the Bible, Job is writing, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he's going to be standing. That's a remarkable revelation early on in Old Testament history. Or how about Isaiah 53, 10? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, in this particular passage, the, the him is the suffering servant, the one who would come and redeem God's people. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That's a remarkable phrase there. He shall prolong his days. This is one who is crushed and he will die. And yet he shall prolong his days. And then how about Psalm 1610? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. The one that David was musing upon would never see corruption. In other words, those texts were there. But as Jewish believers, they simply believed in a general future resurrection. What they could not conceive of and what Jesus has been teaching them is that in order for there to be a future resurrection, one had to come as a substitute and be raised first as the first fruits. And so the, the other disciple, that is John, believed, but his, his belief is not fully uh, grown at the, or mature at this point. And, and as a result, his believing has no apparent immediate impact. And, and that's because he and Peter still not, did not understand the scriptures. Notice in verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. They believed, 
But then they went back to their homes. It's almost inconsequential at this point. But this also drives home that the disciples did not make up this story in order to fit their understanding of Scripture, which has been the charge oftentimes. They had no concept, even though Jesus had prophesied time and time again that he would be crucified and raised from the grave. Their understanding is that it would occur in the last day. Meanwhile, as the disciples go back home, the narrative picks back up with Mary. And here in the second part of this passage, Jesus comforts Mary. Notice in verse 10. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. The grief is clearly seen in this, these words. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus has a real body. This is not, he's not a ghost. He doesn't look like a ghost, as we're going to see. But he was able just to appear. He was able to, as we'll see later in the passage, just appear through locked doors. John 21 tells us he's able to eat. But this is a real body. It was his body, but it's been raised. And, and what's interesting is the disciples, nor Mary, initially recognize him. Why is that the case? Well, I believe it's because he had a body like ours. Not a sin nature, but he had a body like ours. And, and sin has such a horrific effect, even on, on the physical appearance of our body. When he was raised, Paul tells us, the glorious swallowed up the inglorious. Mortality was swallowed up by immortality. And I believe it had an effect on, on the very appearance of his body. But he appears to her here, and Jesus said to her, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. So he looked like a man. He, was, he is a man. Uh, he did not look like some kind of spiritual uh, or some kind of ghost-like figure. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She heard him speak her name. And the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So he tells her, don't cling to me, because I have not yet ascended. In other words, a change is now taking place in Jesus' relationship with his disciples. Now, 
after his ascension, his permanent abiding with her isn't going to be in the flesh. It's going to be in the spirit. And that's good news. Because Jesus' flesh is not omnipresent. All right? Jesus' flesh can only be at one place at one time. And, and so if Jesus was here, he wasn't here. But now as he ascends, he is everywhere with his people. In fact, our relationship, uh, our communion with him will be even more uh, beautiful and intense because of those who are in Christ by the Spirit, Paul says, Christ lives in us. And so if you sometimes get discouraged and you believe that God is distant from you, if you are a believer, let me just tell you, he's not. He is not. In fact, note here for the first time, he calls his disciples by a new name, his brothers. Now, he's referring to men there, but he could say this to every female believer here as well, to his sisters. I love that. Hebrews 2 tells us he is our elder brother. We have Jesus now as our brother because, notice, he uses the language of father. He says, go tell my father and go tell your father. I love that. This is adoption language. What G Mary was learning was that to know God as father required Jesus, her brother, to die for her. As Paul would say in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that what? We might receive what? The adoption as sons. Indeed, the it is finished of our elder brother on the cross, conjoined with his empty tomb, changes, as one scholar says, the heaven's courtroom from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. That is our good news this morning. And as a result, it is not presumptuous in the least for you as a believer to accept God's uh, approval, acceptance, and favor. You have it. You have it in the Son. You've been adopted. You're a joint heir. Actually, the opposite is the case. It is presumptuous and prideful to doubt God's acceptance. You are accepted in the beloved, as we saw in Ephesians verse, chapter 1, verse 6. To accept his acceptance, to accept his love and his provision. It's beautiful and glorious news. We have a father, we have an elder brother. And armed with that news, Mary models for us what we should all do with that news. Notice in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples... I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Now, the Jews would not have made this story up because a woman in that day couldn't even testify in court. And so why is the first witness of the resurrected Christ a woman? Well, for one thing, we see God's esteem for women in a world 
that did not esteem women. Women have the same dignity and worth and status as men. But another reason we read of a woman being the first witness of the resurrected Christ is because that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. And now in verse 19, we're going to see the first of three resurrection appearances to the disciples. We only read about two of them in chapter 20. The third one that we would see in chapter 21, which we will not look at today. That brings us to Jesus' commissioning of his disciples. Notice in verse 19, on the evening of that day, it's the first day of the week, so it's still Sunday night, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So they are fearful, and they're probably fearful because of their connection with Jesus, and they saw what happened to Jesus. They're cowards at this point. But in their fear, Jesus simply reveals himself. He simply appears and he announces what his death has accomplished for them. And so I think it's interesting. The first words he says to his disciples is peace, peace be with you. In other words, Jesus has satisfied the Father's wrath. Now, I know a lot of people have a hard time with wrath. That's because you're imputing your own experience of wrath onto a holy God. Our wrath is volatile, it's temperamental, and it's generally selfish and self-serving. But imagine a world where, where sins and crimes weren't penalized. God's wrath is good. It's the hope of the world, in fact. And so at this point, though, Jesus has satisfied the Father's wrath. He's crushed the serpent's head. He's absorbed the sting of death. And he has reconciled all believers to the Father. In other words, he can speak peace because that's what he has achieved. Peace is one of the chief blessings of the Christian experience. It's a blessing that every Christian can enjoy. Our hearts are hardwired for this peace. And there's three aspects to this peace, all of them connected together. The first is objective peace. We have objective peace with the Father because Jesus Christ has removed the enmity. He has taken the wrath between us and a holy God. And that's why Paul would write in Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do you realize that when he went to the cross, if you are a believer or if you will trust in Christ, every sin you have ever committed, past, present, and future, was nailed to that cross. He absorbed the wrath for every sin you could or would ever commit. And now you have, we have as believers, objective peace with God. But there's a second kind of peace, and that's personal peace. No matter what my circumstances are. You see, when your sins are forgiven, you know that the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe is your Father. It's remarkable to be able to call the one who is sovereign over all things and who is good and righteous and loving Father. And to know that the one who, who redeemed you, you can call your brother. There is a brother. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is peace with others. We talk a lot today about uh, reconciliation. The reality is 
it's already been achieved. There is peace with others. And the importance of that is seen throughout the New Testament when, for instance, Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers. Or Paul would say in Romans 12, that if it's as possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Why? Because of the cost paid for our peace. An infinite cost was paid that we might have peace. A cost reflected by the scars. And that brings us to verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Our hearts are hardwired for gladness, aren't they? They Their hearts were glad when they saw the Lord. May we behold the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now this is a remarkable verse here, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What does that remind you of? That's, that's Genesis 2, 2, 7. That this, this is echoing Genesis 2, 7, where God breathed life into humankind, the very breath of life. This is John's way of saying that Jesus is indeed divine. He is the creator. He already established that in chapter one. But that because of his finished work through his cross and his resurrection and by the giving of the spirit, God is bringing about a new creation. So this verse is a foreshadowing, an anticipation beginning with the disciples of Pentecost that would occur seven weeks later. And and this gift of the Holy Spirit isn't something to be hoarded. We do though, don't we? Because in the West, we are notorious consumers. Even as Christians, we're always thinking about how the gospel can benefit me, how the church can serve me. And yet nowhere in the scripture do you see a consumer mentality. We see here there are massive missional implications attached to this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, notice in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this can be so misrepresented because only God can forgive sins. So what does he mean here? Well, Scripture does teach us that the disciples and those who follow them, us, believers, have the keys of the kingdom. And what that means is we have the authority to declare on earth what has been declared in heaven. And so if someone repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus, I have the authority to say, your sins are forgiven. It's not because I'm the one forgiving them of their sins. God has already forgiven them of their sins. I'm just declaring on earth what has been declared in heaven. And if someone refuses to repent of their sins, if someone refuses to trust in Jesus, I and you have the authority to say your sins are not forgiven. You are under the condemnation of God. And that's what's being said here. And that brings us to the final part of this passage where Jesus convinces Thomas. Notice in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, 
called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know why he wasn't. People, uh, people tend to grieve differently. He wasn't with the group. He was by himself, evidently. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, he's, he's been given short change in history. He's been called Doubting Thomas. And I think one of the reasons this verse is here is to remind us they weren't making this up. Uh, they didn't have this, this plan, this strategy to convince the world that Jesus would be raised from the grave. No, no man had ever been resurrected before. Jesus had raised Lazarus. He had raised, the, raised the Jairus' daughter and, and the widow at Nain's son. Uh, but those people would die again. No one in the history of the world had ever been resurrected. And so I think Thomas gets shortchanged when we call him Doubting Thomas. All of us would have been Doubting Thomas given this situation. But they tell him that we have seen the Lord, and he says, I have to see the scars, uh, or I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas with, was with them. Now, this is probably Sunday, because they, they used an inclusive kind of counting of days. And so if you count uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, it's probably Sunday the next week. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, I love this. He meets Thomas where he is. That's what he does. He meets you where you are too. All of us are in different places and all of us have different struggles and all of us have different kinds of doubts. But he meets Thomas where he is. Instead of con condemning Thomas, he says, put your finger here He sees my, and sees my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What God creates, what God commands, he creates. And that's what you see right here. Do not disbelieve. That's a word to every person here. For those of you who have never trusted in Jesus, this is a command to you this morning. It's not just an offer. It's a command. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Now, given the purpose of John, this really is the apex of the gospel. This is where the gospel has been headed the entire time. In the Old Testament, Lord and God are frequently used together to refer to Yahweh. Thomas's confession here of Jesus becomes the paradigm for all Christian confession. To be a Christian is someone who can say, given the finished work of Jesus, his cross and his resurrection, my Lord and my God. Indeed, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think Jesus is repudiating Thomas here. Actually, what he's doing, he's pronouncing a blessing 
on those who will not share Thomas's experience. Thomas would be the only one. These disciples would be the only one who would see, and then those that he would, he would reveal himself to before he ascended. They would be the only ones who would see Jesus in the flesh after he was raised. But Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who take Thomas's confession by faith. Those who are willing to take Thomas's report by faith, Jesus says, are blessed. Indeed, it is good news for us. First Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. That's you, every Christian here. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. Indeed, believing in the resurrected Christ is John's very purpose of writing. I love it when the writers tell us why they're writing. He closes out this chapter by telling us why he wrote this gospel. In other words, every story in this gospel has this as its purpose. Notice in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But though these are written, here it is, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Everything written in this gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Notice, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He said there were many signs. John only gives us seven. Beginning with the changing of the water into wine at Cana, and then in chapter 4, he, he healed the official's son. And then in chapter 5, the paralytic the, at the pool of Bethesda. And then in chapter 6, there were two signs. He multiplied the fishes and loaves. He walked on water. And then in chapter 9, he healed the blind man. And then in chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs, all indicating something of who, who he is and what he came to do. But the greatest of all signs was the resurrection. That indeed is the eighth sign, the, the sign that the Son of God, our substitute, has been raised. The question is, as we close out this, this time, do you believe this? John is writing so that you would believe this. When it comes to your besetting sin, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has been raised from the grave. When it comes to your difficult marriage, do you believe that Jesus is risen? When it comes to that person you find so difficult to love, Jesus is risen. He is the Christ, the Son of God. How about your lost loved one that you've been praying for years for? Jesus is risen. Jesus is the Son of God. How about all those anxieties and worries that you struggle with? Jesus is risen. How about your own weak faith, your unbelief? Jesus is risen. The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world is risen. Yes, this is a comedy, but not the kind to entertain you or to amuse you. The kind that gives you unspeakable eternal hope in the darkness in the metaphorical Saturdays 
of your life, when God is silent, the resurrection means God is never inactive. And we have an abiding hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chapter. There's a whole lot in it. We thank you for the people here this morning to hear, behold the risen Christ. We also thank you for the, the table that we, that we celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday. The table of our Lord Jesus Christ that commemorates his death even as we muse upon his resurrection signaling that the death was sufficient and efficient for the salvation of sinners. Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts to partake of this table rightly this morning as we close out our service and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.